Thank you for listening to the New Life Church podcast. If you need any information about our church or if you'd like to give online, please visit us at newlifekingman.com. We saw that we are an integral part of God's story and that he finds us even in our obscurity. Tonight, we are going to journey through the rest of the Christmas story. And when you think about the characters that we just talked about, you kind of think, well, what's left? Well, lots. So strap on your seatbelt. Here we go. So let's review. First of all, Zechariah and Elizabeth, a wonderful, godly couple dedicated to the things of God, serving God even in their old age, but beyond the ability to have children. They're too old. It's not going to happen. Even with the wonderful stories in the Bible of God blessing people, Abraham and Sarah, they had probably settled in their heart that it wasn't going to happen. But God had a plan. And God's ways are not our ways. And part of what happens is we think in the natural and we say, well, it can't happen. And God said, yes, it can. I have a plan. And so you are here for such a time as this, just like he said to Esther, you're here for this particular time in history. I'm going to use you here. That's what he did with um, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And he, they birthed John the Baptist, who was the one who was the precursor to the coming Messiah. He was going to announce him. He was going to prepare the way. He was going to begin to help prepare God's people's hearts. And so um, Zechariah and Elizabeth were in a specific time in history for a specific purpose. And when we know that in our lives, we are not an accident. You know, I've heard people say, oh, I should have been born for this time. Well, okay, maybe you relate to that time, but God put you here for a reason in this time. And so we can't lose sight of that, that no matter what we think, we have to know that God has purpose and plan for our lives for this time, right where we are. So God broke 400 years of silence with the angel Gabriel showing up in the temple while Zechariah is serving God. God heard his prayer and they had a son. So their son was such the precursor for the Savior that while he is still in his mother's womb, the mother of Jesus speaks out while Jesus is still in her womb, and John the Baptist leaps in absolute confirmation. He heard Messiah before Messiah was even born. John the Baptist was already doing what God had called him to do in utero. It's amazing what God does if we will allow him to be who he is. So when this happens, Elizabeth and Mary rejoice together at what God is doing because they are in a partnership for the things of God. So then Mary and Joseph, here's this couple, they're betrothed to be married, and she ends up pregnant. So Joseph knows, well, she's pregnant, and it takes two to do that, and I know I wasn't there, so it's not my baby. But because he's a righteous man, because he's a kind man, he makes a plan to put her away 
quietly, to quietly break off their engagement because he doesn't want to shame her. He doesn't want to put her in danger. He's a kind, gentle, godly man. So um, he's making his plans. He's devastated in his own personal pain and his own devastation. He is making plans to protect Mary, the one who actually hurt him. So again, in his devastation, he is pondering and the Holy Spirit shows up, an angel of the Lord says, don't, it's okay to take Mary as your wife. I've got a plan and you are part of it. And I need you to listen, hear, and obey because it's really mission critical that you do your part in this story. And so Joseph, Mary's Mary, they obey all that God tells them and the Savior's born. So some average Joe shepherds, they're hanging out in the fields. And all of a sudden at night, this angel bursts on the scene and announces that the Savior's born. And then this heavenly host. We know that there are millions of angels. I can't even imagine what that looked like. Who knows how many of them? But, but it must have been pretty cool to be one of those angels singing the glory of heaven at that point, announcing the new Savior. And so, um, but the shepherds say, we have to see the newborn king. And so they leave immediately. And then as soon as they see the newborn king, they immediately begin sharing the good news that Messiah has come. So people are amazed at the story. Um, and while they're selling sheep for sacrifice at the temple, they are telling everyone. Now, I don't know, I can't say that they put together the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world is here, but think about it. Here are the men who did the sheep for the sacrifice. Excuse me. They did the sheep for the sacrifice, and they're announcing that the Lamb of God has now come, and it will no longer be necessary for animal sacrifice because the Lamb of God with the perfect blood has come. And it, and it will be done. We don't know that they understood that necessarily. They knew the prophecy. Um, but they didn't necessarily know that... Um, Sorry, guys, you got a tickle. We don't know that they necessarily understood what things were going to look like. They just knew that the Messiah was born and they had to tell everybody. So they did that. So the angels are also a vital part of every one of these stories. The angels are in every one of these stories. Um, and they did their part. Their mission is to worship God and serve him by ministering to us. That's in the angels' jobs. And so um, that's kind of a recap of last week. So now let's take a look at the other players in our story all of them are important and vital to the Christmas story. Some of them enter the story later than we necessarily think, but at least one of them is the star of our show. So let's start with Simon. <clears throat> Simon, um, his name means listening or hears. Simon was a devout Jew, and he was eager for Messiah. In Luke 2.21, we read about his story. Eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, 
He was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel, even before he was conceived. Then it was time for their purification offering, as required by the law of Moses, after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. I'm going to stop there for just a minute. In that time, remember, they lived under Roman law, under Roman rule. They were conquered. Sometimes we have to be really careful that we don't interpret the word of God based on our experiences. When it says here, he was waiting for Messiah to come and rescue Israel. Most Jews in that time thought Messiah was going to be a conquering warrior, that he was going to come in and kick Rome's butt and give um, Israel back to his people. Obviously, we know that that's not what happened. But sometimes we misinterpret the things that God says because we are in a position or in an experience, things are going on in our lives. And so we interpret the word of God the way we want it to. We have to be really careful of that. And that's where being led by the Holy Spirit is vital to our walk with God. Okay, continuing, the Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people, Israel." Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. Now that is a incredibly huge portion of scripture as far as digging into it. So we're not going to dig too deep because we just don't have time. But I do encourage you, um, tonight before you leave, if you're interested, I have a handout that I created a couple of years ago for a Bible study that I taught. And it's how to study the Word of God. And there's lists of resources and um, some things you can go online, but also physical resources if you don't go online. And it can help you kind of go into a passage like this and study it out in a responsible way. So if you're interested in that, you can just see me afterwards. I've got them up here. Um, So what a privilege for Simeon to see Messiah at the very beginning of Messiah's life. Simeon was thrilled as he had waited for this his whole life. The Holy Spirit was upon him, an incredibly rare honor in those days, and Um, had assured him that he would see Messiah before he died. Many believe because of this that he was elderly. In verse 29, he even says, now let your servant die in peace. However, that doesn't necessarily mean he was elderly. Scripture only tells us that he lived in Jerusalem and awaited Messiah. So 
again, we have to be careful how we look at things. It, it's likely that he was elderly. They waited a long time, but we don't know that for sure. So, but God is such a promise keeper. He knew Simeon's desire to see the Savior, and he gave him such a special gift. First, he assured Simeon that he would see Messiah, and then he kept his promise. I can only imagine what Simeon must have felt that day. Um, it, the awe, the overwhelming emotions, the unspeakable joy. Have you ever had a promise? I remember when our daughter was born. We had waited 16 years to adopt her. And the day she was born was, I can't even describe to you the emotions I went through. I mean, I was really all over the map. I was kind of a wreck. But um, just the, the thought. And then when the papers were signed legally and her birth mother couldn't change her mind, the unbelievable joy. I'm a mama. Oh, my gosh. It, it was my heart's desire. It was something I wanted so bad. I couldn't even describe to you how much I wanted that. And so when that promise was fulfilled, that was glorious. I can't describe to you those feelings. Simeon must have felt the same thing, that type of overwhelming, unspeakable joy. And I mean, we can trust that God is a God of his word. Numbers 23:19 declares, God is not a man, so he does not lie. He is not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried through? It might be for you a not yet, but it doesn't mean a no. And for us, 16 years of wanting to have a child, it was a not yet, but it wasn't a no. God had made a promise to me, and he answered that prayer. He went through, he came through this promise. So we're not told much about Simeon. Scripture doesn't identify his tribe or his profession. Remember, the tribes were important to them back then. We don't know what he did for a living. But sometimes maybe what God's telling us through his story is that those things are not that important. God, he just wanted to love on Simeon and give him what he wanted. It's not wrong to know these things like, it wasn't wrong. Many of the others were identified by their tribe. It's not wrong. But we have to know that God sees our value far beyond that. Our pedigree just doesn't matter to God. Some of us are just kind of mutts. And he's good with that. He loves mutts. He loves them. They're usually the nicest ones on the planet. You know, you see a pedigree and they're snooty. But you see a mutt and they're just like... God's cool with that. You know, he's cool with, with Heinz 57. He, he really is. We do not have to come from any great background. He's not many noble, not many mighty. Not, you know, he just doesn't go for pedigree. And so um, it's the heart that matters. And we can see from this story what Simeon's heart was. We know he was spirit-led. Verse 25 tells us the spirit was upon him. Verse 26 says the spirit told him he would not die before he, he saw Messiah. And verse 27 says he was led by the spirit to go into the temple when Mary and Joseph did. That's a lot of Holy Ghost in this guy's life. Romans 2.11 tells us, for God shows no partiality. The same spirit that led Simeon wants to lead us. And we just have to listen and obey. Simeon waited, as do we. Jesus is coming back, but in the meantime, he is Emmanuel, God with us. It's also interesting to note that Mary and Joseph were amazed at what was being said about him. The word is a connotation of being surprised by Simeon's words. 
It must have been hard for them to picture their baby as Messiah, even though they knew. Like, I'm not, there's no judgment here. They knew, I mean, she was a virgin when she conceived. She knew she was the only one there. Angels visited them and spoke to them and led them. And they knew the prophecies about Messiah. And I would dare to say that when she was pregnant and God told them who he was, that they studied out those scriptures. So they, these were well-versed in the word of God. But they were still amazed. And I thought about it. I thought, you know what, God, we're in good company when we see clearly the hand of God in our lives but are still amazed when things line up with what he says. In reality, it's really easy for us, this side of prophecy, to read it, interpret it, and believe it. It's like, oh, I know what that means. That's, that was that scripture is the promise of Messiah. Well, okay, yeah, wow, it doesn't take a, a scholar or a rocket scientist to come up with that when you're on this side of the prophecy. But they were on the other side of the prophecy. They were living it. They, first, they were introduced to it wham, like, okay, you're pregnant. And it's like, oh my gosh, like they must have been oh, so overwhelmed by so much of this. They were human beings. These are not perfect people. They're human beings. And there had to have been struggles. And then it's kind of like, like we've all been there. Okay. So think about it. We wait, we can rehearse what God said over and over in our minds. And then as time goes on and we're not really seeing the fulfillment, we kind of begin to wonder, did we really hear from God? And is that really what he said? Thank God he's faithful to us, even in our, when we begin to doubt, when we don't see. Again, my adoption journey was full of doubt and, and um, heartbreak and all of that stuff. But I knew what God said. And God is not a tease. He's not a liar. He is faithful. So when he says he'll do something, he'll do it. He's a good God who loves us with an everlasting love. Emmanuel, God with us. So the next character in our story is Anna. Anna's name means gracious or one who gives. Um, I admire her greatly. When I read her story, we see very little of her in scripture, but what little we read, she was a powerhouse. So we read her story right after the story of Simeon. She walks in as Simeon is with Mary and Joseph and the young newborn king. Luke 2, 36 through 38 says, Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. She was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years. Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. So both Simeon and Anna met Mary and Joseph when they brought Jesus to the temple. But Simeon was led there by the Holy Spirit, which meant he wasn't always there. Anna was always there. So there are different ways of estimating her age. This translation, which is the New Living, says that she lived as a widow to the age of 84. So according to this translation, she's 84 years old. Other translations say that she um, was widowed for 84 years. So if she was married for seven, 
let's say she was 13 when she got married. So she was widowed at 20. And then if she was widowed for 84 years, that puts her at like 104 years old. So again, however you do your estimate, since we don't really know, she was up there. (laughs) She was an elderly woman. And so verse 37 tells us she stayed at the temple day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. She could have been giving sleeping quarters at the temple, or she could have lived close by. Obviously, she had to eat and sleep, and we don't know where she did that. But to say she was dedicated is a serious understatement. Like in the song Waymaker that we sing, Anna could say, even though I don't see it, you're working. She trusted God for a very long time. Scripture calls her a prophet from the tribe of Asher. She spoke a prophecy over Jesus, but we don't know what that prophecy said. We, we didn't, you know, it's not recorded in Scripture. But as a woman to be recognized as a prophet was a rare thing. And it's sad that we, um, thank God it doesn't, our leadership doesn't do this here, but sometimes we devalue people because of our prejudices. Galatians 3.28 says, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Paul's not saying that there are no races or gender or anything. I mean, the world's trying to obliterate gender, and it's stupid. But um, Paul's not saying that. What he's saying is that God doesn't see us that way. He doesn't differentiate us and then put us in classes based on those things and and then value us based on those things. There's not a hierarchy of value in God's kingdom. He sees every one of us as his precious child that he has gifted and called to things of God. Every single one of us. Um, And so we lose out on the gifts people bring to the kingdom when we dismiss them like that. We say, well, you're just a woman, or you're just a Gentile, or whatever. You know, you're a slave, or you're, you're an employee, not an employer. God does not differentiate like that. And so Simeon even declared in verse 32 that Jesus would be a light to the nations, or as some versions say, the Gentiles. Many Jews thought Messiah was just for them. And it, he, it was, he was prophesied to the Jews. But God always intended, he always intended for Gentiles, for those non-Jewish people to also receive Messiah and know him. God knew that many of the Jews would reject him. But remember the angel to the shepherds? Luke 2.10, good news for all people. He loves all people, and 2 Peter 3.9 bears it out. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It does not matter if you're homeless or live in the White House. God wants you to come to repentance, period. He loves them. So Anna approached, as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, And she broke out in spontaneous praise and told everyone who had been waiting for the rescue of Jerusalem about the child. This was no coincidence. God saw to it that she witnessed Simeon's prophecy. Remember, she dedicated her day and night to prayer. So she was secluded most of the time. So for her to walk in at that time was absolutely a God moment. 
And so she does a declaration over the child. God orchestrates this precious moment because his daughter was so faithful. And this was something that she desired in her heart. God is good, church. He is so good. He loves us. He knows what's important to us. And he wants to give it to us as long as it's not destructive. But if it's a good thing that we desire, like seeing Messiah, he is thrilled to give us that. I am certain that it absolutely delighted God's heart to do that for her. And it must have been a life-changing moment for her. What gift her God gave to her. Amen. So Anna was a widow of great age, a devout worshiper of God, and a prophetess who proclaimed the prophetic word, and finally a missionary who told everyone she encountered that Messiah had come. This is a busy lady. Um, the shepherds were the first missionaries, because they told about it, and then Anna was the first female missionary, which is pretty cool in my book. It's not too late for you, as long as you are on the earth and drawing breath, God has a call for your life. Don't let anything hold you back. Anna was courageous, and so can you be. Some might say that Anna waited far too long for the promise. That's a long time. At least she was alive at least 84 years. That is a long time to wait for a promise. I'm sure she had more than her fair share of lonely days and nights, and I'm sure that the enemy tried to torment her about her value in the kingdom. The worthlessness of her service, the futility of her faith, wait, you know, her faithful waiting. Maybe God asked who she thinks she was. Or, I'm sorry, maybe Satan asked, who does she think she was? Sound familiar? Ever hear those lies? But she trusted God and stayed faithful. She knew the goodness of God and that if she didn't see Messiah, this side of eternity. See, I, I had a prayer like that. I told God, I said, you know what, Lord, you're faithful. And I know that you spoke to me that I'll have a child. But if I don't have a child... I will still worship you with every breath because you are faithful and I don't have to understand everything going on around me. You are a good God, period. I don't have to know any more than that. You're good, you're faithful. And so whatever happens on this planet, I trust you and I know that I'm going to spend eternity with you, which is powerful in and of itself. And so... Um, she probably said in her heart, I'm trusting you, God. I want to see Messiah. But in the meantime, I'm going to faithfully work in your kingdom. I'm going to faithfully serve you and do what you've called me to do. Emmanuel, God with us, he asks us to do the same thing. So now on to the wise men. So wise men are controversial because people say, well, they weren't at the manger. And, you know, they, you know this, they, Jesus was older and blah, 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 blah. It's okay to celebrate Christmas. Christmas is every day of every year for our entire lives. So celebrate it every day. However, let's read their story in Matthew 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, 
are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so I can worship him too. Yeah, right. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So there is a lot of speculation about the wise men or the magi. Magi loosely means astronomer or follower of the stars. So they were doing what they normally did. Um, They looked to the stars for signs from God, things to lead them and teach them. They were likely similar to a king's advisor, hence the name wise men. It's not likely that they were actually kings. We three kings of Orient are, may not be accurate depiction, but still a nice song. Um, Remember during Daniel's time in captivity, he was used as the king's advisor. Also, Joseph was an advisor to Pharaoh, and that led to him becoming second only to Pharaoh because of the wisdom God gave him. Both Daniel and Joseph were known for dream interpretation. When God chooses people to give wisdom to, he does not mess around. There is no doubt the Magi were wise, for they saw the star and knew what it meant. See, that's a key. These are not Jews. It was the sign that the Jewish king was born. They knew God's word. They at least knew of the prophecy. So here are men from the east. They're foreigners, but they knew the prophecy about the king of the Jews. So they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That does not mean there were only three men. There could have been multiple magi and numerous numbers of each of those gifts. But they were likely traveling in a caravan as that was safer. They they probably had guards and soldiers with them and people, servants to do what they needed done. So it was a big group of people. It wasn't just three men on camels. And it um, it was also likely that they were traveling on horses. Horses are much faster than camels. Camels make a great silhouette. In a, in a manger scene, but um, the likelihood is that they rode like Arabian horses because they're much faster than camels, and they came a long way. There's speculation about where they actually came from, but the three gifts kind of give us a clue. Gold was abundant in Arabia from gold mines in Africa, and frankincense and myrrh came from Boswellian and Kamafora trees, which were also abundant in Arabia. But in reality, Scripture does not tell us where they came from, just that they came from the east. Some believe that they came from Persia, which is modern um, Iran, and that they were greatly influenced by Daniel and the Medes, Daniel's story. Tradition even suggests that the Magi, and there were a lot of Magi, not just these guys, there were a lot of them. They believe that Daniel was the head Magi in his day, and Daniel's writings and prophecies were greatly revered by the Magi in our story, as well as many others. So there's a lot of historical information that tells us 
the backstory to some of this scripture. Now, I'll tell you this, Pastor John and I were talking the other day, and um, I don't remember who it was. It was a a wicked group that conquered um, in Egypt, and the the Library of Alexandria was just plundered, and we lost so much history from that. And so there is a lot of stuff that we don't know, um, but God knows, and he's well able to keep his word. Trust me, he can... He, no man is going to um, undo his word. And so he keeps his word just fine. And we read these stories. We read what history we know. That helps enrich when we read these stories. But some of it is speculation, and we just have to trust God has it, and we know what Scripture says, and we go with that. There's also a lot of speculation about the choice of gifts. The Bible doesn't tell us what these gifts mean, but tradition says that gold was symbolic of his divinity, and it likely financed their trip to Egypt when they fled Herod's death squad. Frankincense was often used in worship and um, was a symbol of holiness and righteousness. Myrrh was a spice that was used in embalming. So this could have symbolized the suffering and ultimate death of Jesus. Um, It could have been symbolic of Christ's willingness to become a human sacrifice. So in summary, gold was for his royalty, frankincense for his divinity, and myrrh for his humanity. As these were all very costly gifts, Joseph and Mary may have sold them in order to live in the early days as they were in hiding to protect their son's life. Rick Renner, and a a shout out to Dan Roy, he loaned me a little booklet that was, it's rich. It's got all kinds of great information in it. And in that book, Rick Renner reports that the Egyptian Coptic church kept meticulous records of the travel of Mary and Joseph with Jesus throughout Egypt. So you remember Herod was murderous. He was, my gosh. And so um, Mary and Joseph, they didn't just light in Egypt and sit in a house and do live their life. They were under threat, and they knew it. And so they moved around to Egypt um, because Herod wasn't sure he got the baby, the right baby. And so records show, the Egyptian Coptic Church records show that they traveled through and stayed at over 25 places during the three to four years they lived in Egypt. So those of you that have moved a lot can relate. It can really be a headache, but they, they were in fear for, for Jesus' life. So they knew they had to stay mobile, and it's reasonable to think that the sale of all of those precious gifts supported them during this time. Frankincense and myrrh were very, very rare, and so um, they too were very expensive. We think of gold as, as expensive, but all three of those gifts were very costly. So the stark guided the Magi all the way to Jesus. It says that they saw it when it came up, and then they followed it. Stars don't normally do that, and they don't light over someone's house. Like, that was a miracle. So they probably came a great distance. They followed it gratefully and joyfully, but some say they they traveled about 700 miles. That's a long way. Camels, horses, whatever you're on, that's a long way. That's a long way to drive in a car, 700 miles. That's a long way. Um, And so it was likely, knowing that, they saw the star and they traveled 700 miles. Jesus was probably a toddler before they got there. He was not a newborn baby. And it is, some speculate that the star was actually in alignment of Jupiter and Saturn, as a shout out to Kathy, a science geek. Um, That would have been an extremely bright star, um, and it lines up with the time of Jesus' birth. 
But the Magi, the reality is the Magi watched the sky and they knew the prophecies, so they responded quickly. And the star led them, so it had to be moving. What an awesome sign. The Magi heard from God and they listened. After they found Jesus and worshipped him, they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. So they defied his order to come back to him and went home by another route. They too listened to God. It was vital that they did so. Even though it was risky because Herod was known for ruthless brutality and he could have tracked them down, they obeyed God rather than man. And so even an earthly king They disobeyed an earthly king. But God was faithful. He led them and protected them. They obeyed and they were safe. So throughout our Christmas journey, we see that listening to God is vital. Any one of the characters in the story could have caused many problems if they'd not listened and obeyed. Now, again, God is fully able to keep his word. And um, he'll go to plan B if he has to. But he really wants our obedience, and when we obey, it's a blessing to the kingdom of God. So he chooses to partner with us, and our joyful response blesses him. We may not know this side of eternity, the impact that we have, but if you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit to guide you. You just have to listen. We also know angels are sent to minister to us, and they also speak to us. They only say what God tells them. We can trust God to lead us and protect us as we surrender to his will. That is who our God is. He is faithful. When God wants to get his message out, he will get it out. When we have a need, God will meet it. He is the way maker, promise keeper, and light in our darkness. I hope you're gaining momentum in your heart. Um, and your mind about how much God is in control, and that talking to him, listening earnestly for his voice, and knowing his word are vital to a healthy relationship with him. Church, we have to know his word. We have to be listening to the Holy Spirit, and then we have to respond with, yes, Lord. It's so vital to a healthy relationship with him, and to get through what we have to go through in life. Life sometimes is not easy. I've said it many times, um, Dang, man, sometimes the world is just mean. And we have a good God, and that is what we have over and above everything else. No matter what life throws at us, God is always good. He longs for fellowship with us, and he desires for us to see our destiny fulfilled. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So going on to Herod, our next character, I ask you what story would be complete without a villain, right? And what a villain he was. Oh, my gosh. His name means hero. (laughs) It's like, yeah, Satan's hero. Yeah, God's hero, that's for sure. History tells us that Herod was a vicious, paranoid, and ruthless leader who controlled through fear. He perpetrated brutal acts of murder. He was a tyrant driven by the constant fear that someone would steal his throne. He demanded unbridled loyalty and would kill anyone that got in his way. He killed people that weren't in his way. Even if he only perceived you were in his way, you were a liability to be eliminated. So even if his, only his little pea brain told him that you were trouble, you were dead meat in his kingdom. 
However, Magi were actually so revered that Herod dare not threaten them. He strongly suggested that they come back because he wants to worship the new king too. Yeah. But um, he did not threaten them. He brought them. He met with them. He treated them with honor. Apparently, a group of Magi showed up in Rome when Nero was emperor, and Nero treated them like royalty. So you remember Nero? He's the dude that took Christians, skewered them, dipped them in oil, and lit them to light his garden parties. Now, you want to talk about a level of wicked evil. Nero was nasty. But when Magi came to him, he treated them like royalty. He received them as if they were royalty. Um, and so there must have been a great reverence for these men, these Magi. Maybe there was a great fear because they interpreted dreams. And, you know, you think about like what Daniel interpreted, what Joseph interpreted. Um, these were powerful men. And so even these brutal, vicious leaders did not mess with them. They did not offend them. Notice in Matthew 2, 3, it says, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. The first time I read that, I said, oh my gosh, all these Jews are disturbed because Messiah is here? Like, that makes no sense to me. But then as I read and studied and kind of meditated on this, it dawned on me that Everyone was deeply disturbed because Herod was deeply disturbed. And when Herod was deeply disturbed, there was a lot of carnage going on. So people were upset because Herod was upset and they were fearful because he was brutal. So they're disturbed because of Herod, not with him. People were terrified of him. In Matthew 2, 4, he inquires of the religious leaders where Messiah was to be born. That word inquired has the connotation in Greek of interrogation. So these men dared not mislead Herod. All these religious leaders, they were in fear. So they told him the prophecy of Messiah. So think about Herod. Imagine the gall of a man to inquire where Messiah would be born in order to kill him. I mean, the insanity, the level of wickedness it takes to find out where God would be born and plan to kill him to protect your throne. This man was nuts. That's a special kind of crazy. Good luck with that, right? So when a man like Herod was deeply disturbed, it did not bode well for those around him. He killed many of his own family, including one of his wives that he claimed to love deeply. And three of his sons, one of them right before he died because he was supposed to get the throne when he died. So he had his son executed right before he died because he didn't want him to take his throne. He's dying. I mean, the man's nuts. So, I mean, he's just nuts. And so he, all because he thinks that they're going to take his throne. So he executed his own family. And that was not all. He was brutal. He had a brutal reign. And so now he hears of a newborn king that's going to be the new king of Israel, and he is not happy. And the Magi want to worship this king? Herod was murderous, as it is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, when he ordered the slaughter of all boys um, under two living in Bethlehem. So um, in Matthew 2, 13 through 18, records what happened. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. 
That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I call my son out of Egypt. Herod, now let me, again, I'm going to stop there. There were so many prophetic, um, so many messianic prophecies. And so this one here says, I call my son out of Egypt. There's another one that says he will be called a Nazarene. So again, from that side of prophecy, it may have been very difficult for them to fully understand. We look at it now and we go, oh, that's why he said that. Oh, that's why he called him a Nazarene, because they settled in Nazareth. And so we can look at it from this side of it. Hindsight's twenty twenty. We just look at it and we go, oh, okay, that makes sense. But at this time, they're trying to interpret, trying to understand. And God was, Jesus tried to make himself very plain to them, but they had already made up their mind what Messiah looked like. And Jesus didn't fit the bill. We have got to be careful that in our minds we don't pigeonhole who we think God is. We've got to go to his word and we've got to listen to his spirit. So Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. So the only account of the massacre that can be found um, is in Matthew's gospel, um, what we just read. And there seems to be no historic record of that event. And even the Jewish historian Josephus doesn't record it. So a lot of people have said because of that, because there's no historical record, then it didn't happen. I don't think so. It's thought, actually, that the massacre was much smaller, um, a much smaller amount than what is reported. We think hundreds, even thousands of children were massacred. But Bethlehem was a very small place, and even the area surrounding it was not that big. And so there are others that think it was more like 10 to 20 children. Now... A massacre of 10 to 20 children by soldiers is no small thing. So we're not, I'm not making light of that. But that's perhaps why Josephus didn't record it. Because Herod was so brutal and he massacred so many people, Josephus basically kind of focused on the biggest massacres and didn't report the smaller one. We don't know that, but I do know that it says in Matthew that this happened, that's scripture, that's the word of God, God said it, it happened, period. And so um, it doesn't matter if we have a historical record or not. It happened. Um, so nevertheless, the loss of children, regardless how many, to such a brutal and vicious attack, that's no small thing. And so God said it. It's done. When the Magi came, they made it clear that they were looking for a king that they intended to worship. Herod felt like he was the only king and even a god and that he should be worshipped. It's a dangerous place to try to usurp God's position in the hearts of men and women. It's a dangerous man to think he can kill God. But Herod was that arrogant and that wicked, and he had no intention of sharing his glory with some baby. So the historian Josephus reports that Herod died as a result of disease contracted through promiscuity. He had children by many women. History reports that he had at least 10 wives. 
Some of his sons became rulers over the pieces of his kingdom. When you read later on, you'll see there's Philip and there's um, Herodias, or his wife Herodias, and there's Herod, uh, Tetriarch, and there's, there's, I believe, four of them. So like four of his children and his kingdom was split up into those four regions. Um, but basically, he had an STD. And it is based on reading the historical records, medical professionals believe that he was gangrenous on, in a certain area of his body because he was so disgusting and that basically his body was consumed by worms. He died a horrible, horrible death, but it was because he lived a horrible, horrible life. And God is not going to be killed by some punk. It's just not going to happen. God says, yeah, I don't think so, dude. Bring it. I don't think so. And so, no, not going to happen. Now, think about, though, Mary and Joseph's part in it, the wise men's part in it. Their obedience to God helped keep the story the way God planned it. Thank God for godly men and women that will obey God and do what he says. Um. So when so one of the things he did, Herod, um, because he was so vicious, uh, many of the Jewish leaders, he had his soldiers gather them as he was dying. He had them gather them into an arena, which uh, was called the Herodium, I think, had them um, put in there, and he ordered that when he died, they all be slaughtered because he wanted to make sure there was mourning in Jerusalem when he died. What a sick man, right? That is sick. But thankfully, when the news broke that Herod died, the princes were all released and there was great rejoicing. <laughs> God has the final say, amen? And when our enemy plans our demise, God raises a standard against him. Read Isaiah 59, 19. Emmanuel, God with us. God says, I get the last, I get the last word. And my kids are my kids, and you ain't messing with them. So last but not least, let's look at Jesus, our Savior, our King, and the lover of our souls. His name means God is salvation. Hallelujah. The baby in a manger, he truly was that. It takes a great God to reduce himself and bring himself to our level. We made it necessary for him to do that because of our sin, but because of his love for us, he was willing to do it. So he came as a vulnerable, unborn child, born and raised by human parents, and ultimately submitted to a horrible death, all for us. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, God, you're so good. On an interesting side note, scripture does not say this, but it is historically speculated that Joseph of Arimathea, remember Joseph of Arimathea, when Jesus died, he went to Pilate and asked for his body, and then he's the one that put him in the tomb. It is speculated that he was Mary's uncle. Not scripture, but historically speculated. So he would have been Jesus's great uncle. And it's also speculated he was extremely wealthy and he handled resources very well. So after Joseph's death, Jesus was still a young child. We never hear about him after about the age 12, of Jesus' age 12. And so um, it's speculated that the money that they got from selling the gold, frankincense, and myrrh was pretty abundant. They used it for living expenses, but that Joseph of Arimathea may have been the one that managed that for them. And because of that, Jesus never had to take an offering. 
all of his physical needs were met. Now, obviously, he did not live as a wealthy man, but he had resources to do what he was called to do. God met that need. He met the need to protect him as a small child, and then he met the need for his ministry. We have a need meeting God. Amen? So again, it's all speculation, has some historic validity to it, but it's not scripture, just interesting to ponder. You know, what Jesus did for us is a wonderful mystery. Our finite minds cannot comprehend what he did. What a glorious display of perfect love from a perfect God. Uh, he literally is love. On a side note, Pastor John said this weekend, this is what he said about baby Jesus. He speculated that Satan was like, looking at the baby going, really? Not the best you got? I can take him out. And God's reply was, this baby's going to take you out. I thought that was great. It was a great mental picture. I had to, I had to allude to it because it's like, we sometimes, you know, the enemy just thinks he, do you understand the war's already won? We already won. It's not, we don't win. We've won now. We don't have to take his garbage he is a defeated foe. He's just r raging like Herod. I'm not going to have any baby replace me. Oh, yes, you are, because God said so. So guess what? That baby is going to kick your butt. He's going to take you out. And, you know, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who's, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is not just a great scripture memory verse, church. That is a powerful, serious display of sacrificial love. That's who God is. That's how much he loves us. First Timothy 3.16 tells us, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. What a gift Jesus is to us. Merry Christmas to us. Amen. And Philippians 2, 5, uh, 2, 5 through 8, this is a, a passage that Pastor John read this weekend. Think of yourselves the way Christ thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death and the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. As Pastor John pointed out this weekend, Jesus' birth was designed to provide a way for him to die. Rick Renner put it this way, Jesus was God manifested in the form of flesh and blood man. The invisible creator became visible to all of creation and humbly lived a servant's life and died a criminal's death. By this, Satan and sin were defeated and those who put their faith in him are redeemed. Hallelujah. He was still God while he was on the earth, but he completely emptied himself of all the rights and privileges that come with being God. So in Philippians 2, 7, the word emptied himself is a Greek word, kenosis. And um, so Jesus didn't stop being God. He just chose to not function as God. So he didn't just become a man and no longer had deity. He was still God. 
But he laid all of that aside and simply walked as an obedient man, listening to the Father's voice, submitting himself to human authority. That's what Jesus did. And so that way, he could remain sinless and die as the perfect sacrifice for us and do it fully as man. The term fully man, fully God, you may not have heard it, but that's common in in, um, Christian circles. We don't completely understand it, but we can take comfort in the fact that Jesus did all he did as a man, meaning he did not use the power of his divinity to remain sinless. He remained sinless as a man, so he really does understand our struggles. He was tempted just as we are, but didn't succumb to temptation. He stayed perfect. So, as a man, he truly understands our struggles. Hebrew 4, um, 14 through 16. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Emmanuel, God with us. Many of God's chosen people, the Jews, did not recognize Jesus as Messiah, and ultimately the religious leaders of the day had him crucified. Um, But there were those that recognized him, and we've read several in our story. Thank God for godly men and women that will respond to the to the calling and to the um, leading of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the heaven-sent Savior who came with a mission. He came to glorify God by completing the work that God had given him to do. What was that work? An earthly ministry of preaching salvation. Sozo, the word salvation is the word sozo. Saved, healed, delivered. It is a complete package that Jesus purchased for us. He didn't buy the budget version of salvation. He bought the whole shebang for us and paid it in full. All of these people in our story saw and recognized God and responded to him. They saw their Savior. So do you see your Savior? If so, great is your reward. Emmanuel, God with us. God, you're so good. So um, uh, people are what mattered to Jesus. That's who he died for. He did not die for a religious system. He did not die for the temple. He, he did not die for the earth. He died for people. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's Luke 19.10. Not only has Jesus come to seek and save the lost, he's also commissioned all of his people to go and tell others of his saving power. As the Father has sent me, even so I sent you. John 20.21. In John 14, 12, Jesus promises that we will do the same works as him and even greater. We don't know exactly what that means, but the Greek word for greater has the connotation of abundant. I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. Jesus told his followers in John 14, I am telling you these things now while I'm still with you. But when the Father sends an advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and remind you of everything I have told you. I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give you is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Remember what I told you, I am going away, but I will come back to you again. 
We have the Holy Spirit to guide us and empower us to do the work of the ministry. If there was nothing for us to do after we get saved, he'd just take us right to heaven. But he has called us to the ministry of reconciliation because there are so many that don't know him still. 2 Corinthians 5 describes what he wants us to do. So we have to stop evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. What an incredible privilege to partner with God. He entrusts us with his message and he wants us to tell others the wonderful news. Very soon, many of us are going to be with family and friends celebrating the holiday. And regardless of what other people think of Christmas, we know what Christmas is all about. And we can make a difference in people's lives where we are. And so I ask you, pray. Ask God to open doors. Ask God to prepare hearts for the message of the gospel, for the true Christmas story that you can share the love of God with them and that Jesus loved them enough to come to earth and do what he did for them. Um, what an opportunity. You're going to see people that you don't see often. So what an incredible opportunity. And you know that God wants them to come to him more than we ever could imagine. And so when we pray and we send angels and we declare, we are speaking things into existence as though they're not there. And we declare that people are going to be responsive, that they're going to listen to the gospel and they're going to respond to God because their hearts are prepared. Um, and then, again, I'm going to remind you, I have this handout if you're interested in um, some, uh, some tools to help you study the Word of God. So let's pray. Father, I pray tonight that you would give us opportunity and the boldness to share the wonder of your love during this season and for the rest of our lives. But God, prepare the hearts of those you love. This is a time of year where you... Um, are recognized, you're talked about, and so we pray, tenderize the tough heart, touch the broken heart, heal the hurting heart, God. Let us be vessels of honor to demonstrate your love, your grace, your mercy, as well as your long-suffering and kindness. And Lord, I also pray for all those listening tonight that may feel overwhelmed I pray that you would show yourself as their way maker. I pray for those battling emotionally, be the lifter of their head, God. For those battling illness or disease, you are their healer. And Lord, especially for those who have experienced loss of loved ones, minister the comfort that only you can bring. We love you, Lord, and we're so thankful for your perfect love and willingness to do what you did for us, that we would never forget it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night, everybody. Thank you for coming. God is good. Amen? Amen. Amen.